Hello, welcome. You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a bite-sized parenting podcast, a place you can find advice, understanding and support as you care for your small humans. I'm Siobhan Hunt. I love reading Frances Whiting's columns. Her reflections on family life make me laugh out loud. In her 25 years as a writer, she's interviewed the likes of Robin Williams and Steve Irwin. But I think that it is those reflections on everyday life that have the most heart. And it's this heart that she brings to her latest novel, The Best Kind of Beautiful. Hi, Frances. How are Hello, you? Hello. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, as I mentioned, you have interviewed quite big names, Robin Williams, Steve Irwin, many, many extraordinary people. Do you have a favourite interview? Oh, dear. Um, actually, I'm going to say Robin Williams, funnily enough, but I should say that in my job you interview the very famous, the not famous at all, and then the people who find themselves being famous unexpectedly, usually because something terrible has happened to them. So often my favourite interviews are not necessarily the well-known people. Yep. Um, but in this case, I'd have to say he was lovely because I had flown down. This is I should admit this because it makes me sound very unprofessional. But <laughs> this was oh probably I'm going to say ten years ago. I'd flown down from Brisbane specifically for this interview, and I had a one-on-one exclusive with him. And it was a big deal because everyone was trying to get it, and I don't know why, but they said for me. And the interview was scheduled at two o'clock, and I got there really early because I was like very eager. And, um, you know, keen bean, trying to do the right thing. And then when I went to the security, to his staff, to say, well, I'm here, they said to me, you've missed it. And I said, <gasps> daylight savings. No. Oh, Francis, your heart must have yeah, just. Yeah. Well, your face then, that's exactly. Oh. And my heart just, I just could not go back to work and go didn't get it because <laughs> they're at the wrong time. So to cut a long story short, I think I I may have cried when the PR lady took pity on me. And I guess, again, she must have known that he was a, a lovely person because in, there's some people in that circumstance that wouldn't even ask. She said, I will go in and ask him. Yes. So she went in and asked him and she came back out and she said, it's okay. He said, it's okay, come on in. So I went in, and I still remember it quite distinctly. He looked up and he said, Francis, how lovely of you to make it. <laughs> <laughs> and he was delightful from that point on. And, and it's interesting you say that because you can never know when you mm. meet famous people whether they're going to be genuinely lovely. And he was genuinely lovely because I was a bit overwrought, to tell you the truth, and he just understood. And was he funny as well? So funny. So funny. And, you know, when he died, I was very sad, like a lot of people, because I think that, you know, sometimes it is the people who are the funniest. Part of the reason why they are so funny is because they understand the human condition and they understand what makes us laugh, but that also means that they're very sensitive people. And you also mentioned there sometimes you're speaking to people who sort of fall into fame through circumstance Mm. and they're not ready for it. That must feel very strange coming from someone like Robin Williams or a celebrity who is uh-huh. who has been dealing with and managing media and playing to media in a way for all of their careers and then someone who's just – it must be like being a deer in headlights for them. 100%. And I think the 
only thing to do in that circumstance is to be very human yourself because if they can see immediately that you are another person like they are, that instantly puts them at ease. And if it's someone for me that, you know, because I I never forget, I've been a journalist, yeah, for I think maybe 25 years. The one thing that I try and hold on to, every single interview I do, whether it's big, small name, it doesn't matter, I always try and remember that none of these people have to talk to me, none of them. So they have chosen to trust me with their story. So that means that in return, I have to give them the gift of making them feel comfortable and honouring their story and being ethical. And if they say it's off the record, it remains off the record. It's, it's an exchange of trust. So I think in that circumstance, if I often will say right at the beginning, this is very hard for you, you haven't done it before, and you feel uncomfortable with anything I'm asking, saying, doing, we'll just stop, let me know. I did just ask you your favourite interview. Uh-huh. I want to know if your most memorable is different because it doesn't always mean you actually want to remember that interview. I've had, I have had some not great experiences, but I, I find most people are extremely great to tell you the truth well known or not well known I did have an interview with an author actually who'd written I can't care not say <laughs> a blockbuster and um, he just was very difficult and quite rude and for the only time in my entire career I said this this is not working for you or me yeah. Um, you're clearly really unhappy. You don't want to be here. Let's just leave it. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. How did he respond to that? He was a bit shocked, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, and sometimes also, and you would know this um, from you interviewing, you don't know what's happened in a person's life right before they come through your door and start talking. Anything could have happened. Yes, that's true. Um, so I try and take that into account. But on this particular person... He was just really, really rude. Yeah, and how do you – you can't keep going with a conversation. No, and I did try. Or... I gave it a red-hot go. <laughs> I gave it a red-hot go. Enough. <laughs> um, so you do write about family life in your columns. Mm-hmm. As someone who has written about my family, yes. when they were small, it wasn't a question I had in my head, is this the right thing to do or not? Yes. Um, it was uh, definitely something I was trying to connect with other mothers yes. and feeling that this would help other people. Yes. As they get older, mm. as my children get older, I am more aware oh, yeah. that they're conscious mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. what mum does for a job. Have you had that kind of tricky line to balance with your writing and your kids? Yes, of course. And I don't think there's a right way to do it because every family is different. Um, look, for me... I actually have never, you, when they were first born, I said both of their names, like their first names. Um, but then after that, I've never actually used them again. So I don't use their names at all. So I'll say my son, my daughter. Yep. Now, of course, the wider circle knows exactly who they are. <laughs> yes. um, but the wider, wider circle of readers don't. And I would never... Ever, particularly now that my kids are teenagers, I, I would never write anything that I know would embarrass them. 
and being teenagers, that's quite a wide range. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't write about them anywhere near as much as what I used to when they were little and it didn't matter. Do you find you still have the same amount of material, even if you can't, you say, I'm not going to write that story, but is, this, is there as much urgency to write? I feel like there was, a, there was almost an urgency to write when they were small because that's when I needed other support, I guess. I think, um, so what I do is I still write a lot about teens and adolescents and what I'm experiencing at home, but I'll widen it out because in all honesty, I think if you've got a three-year-old, there's other mums and dads of three-year-olds that are going through exactly what you're going through and same as every single age. I think the shared experience of parenthood is one that really, you know, we do all share and it's so great to support each other. So I still have readers, this is specifically with my column, that will write to me with a like a, a, an issue that their teen is going through and say, could you write a column about this? Oh, wow. But without referencing my teenager. Yeah. So that I can just really casually go, oh, look. <laughs> <laughs> this is what Francis says. There's this other teenager... <laughs> Not you, darling. <laughs> but they're having the that same thing. started stealing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, that happens quite oh, often. Oh, wow. Um, so was it a big step for you to decide to write fiction, given you've been doing this column for so long and reflecting on real-life experiences and interviewing people? To tell you the truth, it's probably a relief. I think every journalist... Every journalist thinks they have a, a, a book in them, and indeed most of them do. So apart from the column, I also do feature writing. In our, we've got a weekly magazine, and that's long form. So that's like three to 4,000 words, and that's like profiles or, you know, a deeper dive into stories. And that is often quite arduous, and it is often a bit dark. So for me, being able to write fiction is just... It's just lighter. There's no rules. I don't have a deadline or an editor. Well, I've got my publishers, but <laughs> different to a newspaper. I can't get it wrong. Part of the thing I struggle with as a journalist is I really worry that I've got my facts right. So even after I've put a feature to bed, I can lie in bed at night and think, oh, God, did I get, you know, I hope that, whereas with fiction, there's no rules. So I actually find it infinitely more fun. (laughs) (laughs) And do you, um, with that sense of fun, do you draw inspiration from your own family or do you just go out there in terms of what you're creating for your books? That's a really good question because one thing I do a little bit of, I wish I could do more, is um, sometimes I talk to high school students, um, most especially about reading and literature and, but the thing I like to talk to them about is that whole pressure of knowing what you should do when you finish high school. Because I, I never had a clue, and most kids don't, and many of us still don't, what we <laughs> want to do, you know, when we grow up. And I always tell them, just don't panic, because whatever you do, it may not, you know, you mightn't find the career you love till three, four, five careers later. And thank goodness for kids today, they can have a few careers. Um, but I just think that everything you do is the stuff of life and it creeps into your writing. So for me, my book, yes, there's my family in it, but you know what? There's a there's a family in it that 
I'm pretty sure were the family that lived around the uh, corner from me when I was eight. Um, there's a character in there that I'm pretty sure is loosely based on a colleague I had when I was a teacher living in London. So I think that writers are like bowerbirds. I think that we just pick up little bits of colour wherever we go and just store them away in our nest and then one day out they come. And, you know, what I love about this book is, as you mentioned as a journalist, a lot of sometimes what we have to write can be dark, but this is a book full of heart and laughter and light. Thank you. And so if anyone's listening and wants (laughs) wants that kind of a breakthrough book, this is the one for you. It's called The Best Kind of Beautiful. Frances, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That's Frances Whiting. She's a writer and the author of The Best Kind of Beautiful. For links on where to get a copy of the book, check out the notes in this episode. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.